Hello and welcome to Into Deep. I am your host, Jack Rowland. If you're new to the show, welcome. This is the podcast where I talk to people who have passed the point of no return with their ideas or creative endeavors. A uh, quick little announcement. In a week and a half, October 9th to be exact, I have an exhibition launching at James Macon Gallery in Collingwood, Melbourne called Recovery. I think it's safe to assume there will be no physical opening due to Melbourne's current lockdown, but more of an online exhibition for this one. Possibly private viewing by appointment. Um, I don't really know what's happening with the government guidelines, so I'll keep you updated on that one. But if you would like to view the show, you can request a catalogue by emailing info at jamesmacongallery.com. Otherwise, follow me on Instagram at jackrollandart for all my art updates. And of course, jump on the James Macon Gallery website from the 9th to view the show. All right, today I chat with the mystical, the magical Jake Cobran. Jake is a well and truly established visionary artist a tattoo artist and host of the podcast Quarantine Sessions with Jake Cobran. With all the artists that I talk to, I encourage you to do a quick Google search of his name to see his work before the chat. It's incredibly labor-intensive. It is psychedelic as fuck. It's loaded with themes of spirituality, metaphysical realms, symbology, and occultism. Speaking of this chat, we talk at length about magic and the occult. Almost a bit of a crash course, if you will, for noobs like me. Lube up your curiosity and let's get deep with Jake Copran. Is there a point to all this? I think we're getting in too deep. You don't apply. Bad luck. Well, I have one speed, I have one gear. Go, 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 go. Hey Jake, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, thank you so much for coming, man. I really appreciate it. Just been, um, yeah, immersing myself in your your work over the last couple of weeks. It's um, it's intense. It's 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 really amazing, dude. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah I was telling you before we started, but I was looking at your work too, and it's it's fucking awesome. Thanks, really dude. Appreciate it. <laughs> new new bromance in the making. <laughs> um, I think COVID's a time for like a lot of new internet bromances. Yeah, for sure. I know. <laughs> internet bromances are on like an all-time high right now. Yeah, yeah. That's how I've been keeping sane, man. Just like having at least one conversation a week with someone that I don't know kind of keeps my, yeah, <laughs> keeps me able yeah, to Yeah, for sure. I, I feel that. I mean, I started doing podcasts myself and I've recorded like 50 episodes so far. And it's been oh, cool. really, really cool to have these kinds of connections online and to talk to a lot of really fascinating people. Totally, man. We're about on, on par. I'm coming up to 52. It's, um, yeah, it's been cool. yeah, seriously, seriously keeping my sanity. Hey, um, <laughs> you were saying you're living in Bali. Yeah. That's awesome. How long yeah, have you been I live there? In- Uh, I've been in Bali now solidly for two and a half years. Um, Oh, wow. I think like coming on three years now. And I came here for the first time four years ago, but I only spent six months. It happens a lot with people, but I came here for like a six-week vacation and kind of just never left. Yeah, right. Yeah. And both times that I ended up staying here, I did that. Even... In at the beginning of this particular chapter, when I was living here now for two and a half years, I only was going to be here for like a month and a half. Yeah, I just right. never left. 
So where are you in Ubud or? I live in Ubud, yeah. Yeah, it's like so just beautiful. north of Ubud, a bit outside of town. It's gorgeous. Yeah. How do you? How it's do probably you... one of the most beautiful places in the world. Oh, I, I loved it. I actually, because it's funny, Bali, because I'm in Melbourne, Australia. So, where, whereabouts are you from? Um, I grew up in California, yep. in San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. Well, Bali's kind of because it's so close to us. It's um, kind of known as I'm sure you're well aware, but there's so many of the. Um, it's it's just a real Australian hotspot, a, a cheap and easy mm-hmm. place to go to travel, and um, often doesn't attract the best of Australians. But um, yeah, when I went, I didn't have like the highest hopes. I thought it was going to be kind of this like Western ruined kind of you know thing. But I loved it. I was so pleasantly surprised, and um, particularly with Ubud as well. It's just um, so rich with culture, so colourful, just so much happening. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Good, good call, man. Good call <laughs> on relocating there. Yeah, yeah. I think that people that come here for more of a kind of like a holiday, like party kind of vibe, are kind of disillusioned with or bored with Ubud. But I, it, that wasn't what attracted me to Bali. It was the, the spirituality and the mm. culture, the art, and yeah, just like the traditional Balinese culture was really what attracted me to being here because it's very inspiring and it's uh, it is. Very, very mythological. So being mm. here, I feel like I'm living in some kind of dream or myth frequently yeah. with just these, you know, crazy temples and they do really uh, elaborate and inspiring rituals and ceremonies all the time that are, are really fascinating. I honestly wish I knew more about mm. Balinese culture. I find that there is a bit of a, a gap um, with the expat community, which is, you know, primarily I'm, I associate with the expat community. I don't really have that much of a relationship with the locals here, but the culture is so rich and their traditions are so rich and their mythology is so rich. I would really love to learn more about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, we, when we were there, we had, we were really lucky. They had this street, uh, well, not festival, a massive ceremony where they, uh, a member of the Royal family had died. So they actually had these yeah. like, public cremations of three of the members mm-hmm. of the Royal family and they'd built these enormous, uh, enormous, like maybe three or four, three-story high towers, um, three of mm-hmm. them, and they had them lifted, walked them through the sta- uh, streets, and then set fire to them all publicly. And you could literally watch the bodies kind of eventually just falling apart, and it was just this massive celebration. It's Don't get that in Australia. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, and they build these kind of like, I don't know if they did it in this case, but they often build these kind of like cattle effigies, yeah. like gold yep. gilding mm-hmm. all over it, and they parade those through the streets. But yeah, I think their whole perspective on death is quite different than ours. Um, And I've seen many public uh, cremations. And it's interesting because, you know, if you watched like a a funeral march in Western culture, there would be a a very somber tone to it. And people would be very upset and Mm. people would be, you know, crying and things like that. And it's not like that here at all. You know, the family is walking with, um, they're carrying the body and they're celebrating mm. and they seem happy and they seem joyful and it seems also reverent. Um, but sincerely, you know, that's just because they don't see death as being a problem because they have a very animistic culture that upholds a strong relationship with their ancestors. So for them, it's like, if somebody dies, they're not really going anywhere. Mm. You know, like they still have a relationship with, you know, uncle Made or whoever yeah. they yeah. talk to him all the time. So, they don't really grieve it as some kind of loss. Yeah. Am I right in assuming you've been to Varanasi, India? Not yet. No, I've oh, never right. been to India. 
it's definitely um, high on my list of places that I want to go to. Yeah, I could I could see you uh, based on the the small amount of um, you know, little research on what what your interests are. I could imagine you really really enjoying Varanasi. It's a real weird. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got an energy. It's got a it's got a deep you know, heavy energy there for sure. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. Mm. I like places that give you the encounter with truth, you know, and Varanasi and India in general, from what I've heard is one of those places where, you know, you can't really escape reality. It's just there in your face, the reality of our mortality and, and our humanity. Um, And I think that there's something about being in places like that, that really just opens us up to be raw and vulnerable. Uh, It opens our heart, I guess, in Mm. a, in a profound way. Yeah. You know, um, and, and it cuts through a lot of the, the masks that people wear on a, and the rest of life. For sure. You just get this, this sincerity yep. that I appreciate. Um, you guys and you guys aren't in lockdown or anything in Bali right now. No, I mean, it's really, we're, we're probably one of the best places in the world to be right now. Honestly, right. I feel really blessed to be here. And I had plans actually a few weeks after the borders closed to go back to California. So it's really, you know, it was a it was a blessing in disguise that my whole trip back to California was canceled, and all the things that I was going to do there got canceled. I was going to go back to show my art at some events and festivals and things like that. Mm. But man, I'm I'm just so grateful to be here. Yeah, we have a lot of freedom. You know, uh, the only restrictions is that there are certain restaurants you need to wear a mask in. Um, a lot of the kind of public events have either completely closed down or have been restricted to the number of people that can attend. And, you know, almost all of the tourists have left, which is must be great. nice. That must you know, be really no, nice. It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's no traffic. Um, and the only people that are here now are really the people that actually live here Mm. so you get a slightly more pronounced sense of community because it's generally a very transient community with a lot of people coming in and out all the time yeah yeah i could imagine oh very jealous man we are um we're just in the final week of oh the most intense lockdown in melbourne it's been Mm. you know sanity levels are being tested right now it's all good but yeah um that's uh, i'm glad i'm glad that you're um that you're in a good place, dude. <laughs> um, hey, dude, yeah. uh, so I want to talk to you. I mean, your work is phenomenal. You are a very established uh, kind of contributor to the visionary art world. Your work is large, very loaded with content, very um, technically advanced and very original. Um, but I've been... Thank you. Yeah, of, of course. I've been looking um, through a lot of your posts and stuff lately and I was really wanting to talk with you and I was quite curious about your... Um, you talk a lot about magic. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know much about magic. I've probably had... A few conversations here and there, um, one with another visionary artist, Brian Itch, who is an incredible, oh, cool. incredible painter. Um, I know Brian, great guy. Yeah, great guy. Um, I talked with him when he was on, um, but I haven't, you know, it's, it's just one of those one little parts. I've gone through many little waves of, um, you know, trying, trying to be super spiritual, then almost being like, very metaphysical in my ways of thinking. Then I've gone through the conspiracy theory um, stage. The the occultism and the magic never seemed to. I just never really discovered it. I was wondering if you can give us a, you know, kind of your. Uh, well, what what is it? 
is magic and occultism are they the same thing are they linked they are definitely linked yeah are they the same thing i think that you are probably interested in magic in ways that you don't really know to me my definition of magic is quite broad you know like there's a pretty blurred line between magic mythology and spirituality i think in my opinion hmm. And and the word magic means different things to different people. People would define it differently. You know, like um, a traditional definition of magic, a la Aleister Crowley, would be magic is our ability to affect change in, in accordance with our will, right? So basically, it's the study and um, practice and basically an ongoing experiment of centuries, if not millennia, of how can we use our consciousness to realize particular outcomes. And this has had many different uses. Those outcomes can be a different state of consciousness. So magical practices are often geared towards us reaching what you know we would call enlightenment, essentially, or us um, embodying certain energies, whether those are planetary energies, God forms, trying to take on the attributes of certain gods or deities. Um, so that's one side of magic, what people would call spiritual nourishment. And then another side of magic is practical magic, which is trying to basically hack the matrix using our consciousness and often ritual uh, in an attempt to make a certain outcome occur more easily, uh, even one that is is not of a very high probability. Mm. And um, there have been, you know, centuries of experimentation into that. And that's something that I find really fascinating about magic. One of the things that interests me about it is that it's something that has been, uh, it's been present in human culture for pretty much all of society. So you can historically trace back a lineage of, practical magic at least to ancient Egypt if not before then probably ancient Sumeria you know um, even you could make the argument that a lot of the practices of the kind of earliest of human societies you know the kind of people that created the cave paintings and things like that were were practicing magic to some extent uh, and there's also a very close relationship between magic and shamanism you know right right like it's just like magic is a huge subject yeah and it's something i've been fascinated with for pretty much my whole life you know i didn't really have my first encounters with what you would call kind of like traditional magic although magic is is an ongoing process of experimentation by individuals it's almost like a scientific method where people create experiments, they record the results, and there's peer review. So it's not so much like there's a tradition. There have been particular kind of um, schools of thought that have arisen out of the practice of magic. But when I say traditional, I mean what would be almost just like kind of like officially recognized types mm -hmm. of magic. So I read like, you know, books by Aleister Crowley for the first time when I was in high school, right. you know. Um, and I've just, it's just something I'm, I'm really interested in. I can't even really explain why, but I feel a lot of excitement, you know, in my heart when I, when I encounter it, 
you know, I feel inspired by it in the same way that I feel inspired by like great works of art. It's just to me, very fascinating to think about the kind of flexibility of reality and our ability to use our consciousness to affect it. Yeah. I love that kind of, um, that hack in the hacking the matrix is kind of, I think one of the main things that's got me, uh, you know, tickled my curiosity about it. Um, it's, it's interesting because I mean, I kind of always for no real reason, just lack of understanding, I kind of just wrote it off. I think mainly because of the word magic being, uh, associated, you know, when you're a kid, you believe magic, then all of a sudden, well, that's all just tricks. But then, so I think that was kind of where my block. Not if you're Balinese. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, and yeah. Or a lot of other a cultures. A lot of other Not cultures. if you're from Nepal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I guess having spoken to people like Brian and then starting to look at all the really inspiring and important people throughout history that didn't did take it um extremely seriously i think i saw on one of your posts just a list of notable people david bowie was big into occultism mm-hmm. uh yes. jim morrison um mm-hmm. uh who jimmy else? page bought alistair crowley's castle still lives right. there i believe wow i didn't know that um also he's Dun- obsessed with alistair crowley yeah okay yeah i mean i know a lot of people who are i i i need to read up a bit more duncan trussell um awesome comedian and podcaster he talks about magic a lot Love Duncan. Um, yeah he's he's amazing um so i guess that just makes me question well okay there must be something to this if the if that many people um put place importance on it um but there's also like this kind of darkness that seems to uh, co well maybe that's just a stigma that's been attached to it maybe that's alistair crowley's doing I, i don't know but um I saw on one of your posts you were talking about sigil magic and first mm-hmm. comment was someone saying you you are irresponsible for for teaching people this blah 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 I mean there's nothing that you're saying that is any in any way dark but um it's funny how that there's such a quick association with occultism or magic and darkness whether it's black magic or summoning demons um what what is the relationship with the with the dark the darkness and magic well, I mean, a lot of it is propaganda and a lot of it has to do with conflicting ideologies and worldviews. You know, for example, for people to basically claim their their divine essence and their ability to create of their own accord was in conflict with the Christian dogma that you are basically in a servant to this external thing that is higher than you. Right. And it also was in conflict with the authority of the church and um, was often practiced before the church and kind of pagan folk magic traditions. So the church did a lot to try to snuff that out for their own, basically um, for, for them to propagate their ideologies. So there's that. You know, and that's kind of like within our blood. They literally burned witches, you know, and there was a lot of different instances of people being heavily persecuted for the practice of magic and a lot of brainwashing to say that it's evil, that it's dangerous, etc. You know, so there's that even in the case of Aleister Crowley, who trolled people, you know, and a lot of what the stuff that people look back on and say, like, look, he did this. This means he's evil. He was a highly intelligent guy who was being 
um, vilified by people that are of much lower intelligence and he was trolling them, you know, because he thought it was funny. And it's kind of a lot of the stuff that he wrote was codified in such a way that it takes a certain level of initiation to look at it and even understand what he was saying that to the uninitiated might seem scary or foreboding or I've heard, whatever. I've heard his writings are very difficult to kind of decipher. They're almost if you don't if you don't previously have some study and understanding of magic, it could be quite difficult to decipher what he's saying. You know, it was written for initiates. Uh, actually, you know, like I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I would suspect that his work wasn't even really that publicly available and probably was, as was the case with other occult publications, only available for people who were initiates of particular occult lodges or schools, such as the OTO, which Al- Alistair Crowley was the head of, um, or the Order of the Golden Dawn, which is where he studied and trained. These were like initiatic systems uh, that went through a system of learning they were like hogwarts basically they were educational systems in magic mysticism and the occult kind of secret societies or they were yeah they were secret societies uh but they were like the order of the golden dawn for example which is where alistair crowley studied as well as uh wb yates and um dion fortune uh arthur Waite, who created the writer Waite deck of the tarot you know like uh, a lot of very prominent occultists and is kind of seen as being like the fount of what we would consider Western magic now w- was basically a system of initiation that trained people how to undergo a process of enlightenment. So the motivation behind the rituals that they were doing was to cross the abyss, which means to do away with the self-construct to basically undergo an ego death and to realize our larger self, what we might call the God self or, or to uh, like in yoga to have unit, a unity experience and to also undergo knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel, which was basically to become some kind of a prophet. It was to basically become at one with the highest aspect of divinity. And that was the core intention of the order of the golden dawn for which, you know, practical magic and other things were also an aspect of, but its primary concern was people realizing and um, evolving their consciousness to basically reach a sort of enlightenment. Right. You know? So I'm sorry, I like got a little derailed there. Mm. I want to touch back on, you know, this aspect of fear around magic, uh, there is dark magic and there is black magic. That's a real thing. You know, there in even the like ancient uh, Greek papyris, which is like our oldest existent records of magic in Western culture, you have things like people capturing the souls of criminals and then summoning demons and offering, binding the demons against their will offering the demons like these souls as like a uh, what's the word like penance or something like that and then forcing them to go off and do their bidding so that's like quite dark and nasty right Mm. and that is one way that magic can be approached there's also there have been certainly in human history times where magic has involved human sacrifice uh, and things like that so there is 
and it's also been used oftentimes or throughout history for malicious purposes like Adolf Hitler for example was a practicing occultist so there is this side to it but I look at magic as being fundamentally neutral you know it is a skill set that can be honed and developed and more than anything it's a symbolic way of seeing the world it's a it's a way of seeing the world through a mythological and symbolic system that fundamentally relies on correspondences right and synchronicity so magic by itself i consider to be inherently neutral it's sort of like a tool with which one can affect the world and they can do that in based on their own state of consciousness to either detriment or to the benefit of others you know much like a surgeon can wield a knife and save somebody's life whereas a thief can wield a knife and murder somebody for their own gain you know right so i think a lot of the fear around magic comes from a place of all of you know hollywood and the christian church over publicizing the darker aspects of it without talking too much about the light side of it and that just saturating people's imaginations right so i mean so the way you kind of described at the start using using one's will to basically manipulate or dictate one's reality i guess uh sounds pretty kind of sounds pretty simple sounds almost like manifestation but there there are a lot of actual principle or like practices involved in magic i mean i watched one of your videos Mm -hmm. and um, one by grant morrison about sigil magic Mm -hmm. where you basically um you write down an intention you uh there's a certain um method of converting those words into a very uh crystallized simple symbol um and then basically using that symbol to manifest that intention so like would what are some of these um practices like where where do they come from like sorry if i'm sounding very uh uneducated which i am but is is there kind of like a lot of like spells like spells and things like that i've heard duncan trussell talk about doing magic spells and things is this is this i mean a, a, a spell is basically another word for procedure Right. So there are particular procedures and uh, rituals. This is what I'll say about magic. There is no way to do magic. There are many ways to do magic, much like every single painter has a different way of painting. Every magician has a different way of approaching things. So it's an ongoing and living history of magicians who experiment with different techniques, share their work with others, cross-pollinate ideas, etc. So the sigil magic technique, for example, gained popularity through the tradition of chaos magic. Chaos magic is essentially what Christianity is to Judaism or what Buddhism is to Hinduism, you know, and the sigil technique was uh, first developed actually by an incredible artist named Austin Osman Spare, who was a kind of Beardsley-esque illustrator uh, in the 19th century uh, or I believe the 19th century, like end of the 19th century, I think. Uh, He was friends with Alistair Crowley. He was a member of his AA group, which was an occult lodge, a magical order at the time. But basically what Austin Osmond Spare's contribution to magic was that there was a dominance of this kind of Victorian worldview that required very complex symbol systems. This is what Alistair Crowley, for example, wrote about 
um, that was derived from the the Kabbalistic tree of life from uh, Greek, Roman, and Egyptian mythology, and it's very complex. It requires a, you know you need to essentially know Hebrew to know know how to do it. It requires a lot of academic intellectual rigor um, and to memorize mythologies, symbol systems, correspondences, etc. So it's like it's very rigorous uh, and it's very elitist. You know, it's not very accessible to most people. Austin Osmond Spare said that's bullshit. You know, like I am a modern person. I live in cities. To me, a train is a more significant symbol than whatever, you know, Keter represents on the tree of life. Like, I don't know what Keter represents on the tree of life. That's not part of my consciousness or culture. And we can work with what just exists in our lives around us, you know, so you can use anything within our lives and within our culture as viable material that you can use to do enchantments or to work particular forms of magic. Right. So, you know, a lot of what's called, you know, like stage magic, what people think of when they hear the word magic is like sleight of hand. Austin Osmond Spare's sigil technique came out of the idea of sleight of mind, you know, where he was actually exploring psychology at the time. This is when, you know, psychology had a, a rise to prominence. And you could almost make the argument that a lot of magical systems were kind of like archaic forms of psychology because we didn't have the terminology to be able to describe these things that we do now. And he basically discovered that in order for change to be affected in his life, it needed to be rooted within his subconscious mind. So that's why he does, he basically invented this sigil technique, this system, which was a way of implanting intentions and beliefs and affirmations and uh, outcomes that he wanted to experience into his subconscious mind. You know, the yeah. idea is that our conscious mind is like just the tip of the iceberg and it, it holds very little power in comparison to our subconscious mind. So yeah, to create a sigil, there's a lot of different ways to create sigils the way he practice it and uh, this was also later popularized by kenneth grant and peter j carroll who are also prominent kind of founders and teachers within chaos magic they uh basically take out all the repeating vowels or all the vowels and all the repeating letters of a sentence combine the letters into a symbol and you have your sigil and there's so many different ways of then kind of imprinting that into your subconscious mind you know a very popular way is to visualize it at the moment of orgasm you know, or you can use deep meditation, uh, sensory deprivation tanks. You can use fear, you know, strong emotions. Pain is another way that you can kind of do it. Anything that sort of bypasses the conscious mind. And like, I, you know, I have like sigils that I just tape around my house and just forget that they're there. And I feel like that's another way of just getting things into your subconscious mind, which is that you just, it, you, it's like, you know, when you're like, I made coffee this morning, it's like a totally automatic process. I'm not really like using much of my conscious mind, but my subconscious is very engaged still. So this, in the same way, if there's environments that are familiar to us, you can put sigils up around those environments and just through the automatic process of going about your day, kind of forget that they're there and it will satur begin to saturate your subconscious, you know? So that's that's very much kind of linked, I guess, to ideas of manifestation almost. 
um, getting those sure. getting those intentions yeah. deep it, into your subconscious. In, in, in fact, I mean, most of our ideas about manifestation come from a tradition called New Thought, which was an American occult tradition. It was closely linked to spiritualism. You know, a lot of the newfound experimenters were also experimenting with things like seances, which were very popular at the time. Um, H.P. Blavatsky's Theosophical Society was another occult branch of mysticism, essentially studied, you know, she was one of the first people to propagate the ideas of Buddhism and Hinduism to the West. And so a, a lot of the, there is definitely a correlation between what we would now call like the law of attraction and magic and the occult. And I would consider new thought, which is where that comes from, to be in essence, a form of magic. Right. Is that kind of like similar uh, in any way related to basically what that book, The Secret, was kind of alluding to that became a massive success? That was like international bestseller, but that was a kind of very flowery version of of the yeah manifesting your uh, yeah yeah reality. I, I, guess. I would say I would say yes. And if there's one takeaway from The Secret, it's that we do have agency to affect change in reality. Right. And that's something that is uh, important for people to realize. Uh, and very empowering for people to realize because a lot of people function throughout the world without believing that that's true, mm. you know, that they're just victims of circumstance. The secret, however, is a pretty, you know, uh, it's a pretty, uh, it's a kind of crude representation of these ideas, right? It lacks a lot of kind of um, scrutiny and precision that other people within new thought have, approach that subject right and it's just it's not as easy or as simple as saying like oh i you know i have a million dollars and visualizing it and it happens it's a lot more nuanced than that you know it's also not as simple as doing a ritual for that but i think that a lot of people who are practicing magicians the idea of doing a working that extends outside of just the ritual environment so for example to consider all the actions that you're doing in your daily life as part of the ritual, right? So it's not in conflict. It's not saying that things always have to arrive by some kind of, um, and I think this is where people get are mistaken about magic and where they criticize it. You know, you're not expecting the, you're not always expecting the radically improbable to occur, right? Like you can do some kind of a ritual that just fuels extra psychic energy into the manifestation of some kind of goal or desire that then you do pretty mundane means to accomplish. It doesn't mean that the magic didn't still have an effect, you know? Hmm. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause like, uh, particularly with when the, the secret came off of, I've, I've written off that stuff so many times, but, uh, it, it, these things do kind of keep creeping in with a lot of the people that I've looked up to. I mean, there's that famous, I think Jim Carrey, he, he says in his early days, he was uh, all about manifesting and positive, you know, um, intention setting. Like his, he, his whole um, story was he, I think had no money and uh, wrote a, a check to himself for $10 million for the services of acting and gave himself either three or five years. And then, uh, literally almost pretty much to the day he received a check for $10 million for Dumb and Dumber, uh, which is, um, yeah, I mean, you can go on YouTube and hear him, Jim Carrey talk about that, which is, a, yeah, it's a bizarre kind of uh, 
another story that just kind of attests to the power of intention setting. And actually, the more specific the intentions are, the more likely, um, well, things can often be. Um, again, I've got no fucking clue uh, where I stand on the belief of all this, but I do find it very interesting to explore these ideas. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't need to believe anything when it comes to magic, especially if you're a chaos magician, hmm. because, you know, the chaos magician basically asserts that, you know, beliefs are just sort of garments that we wear and that they're only valid if they have some kind of usefulness, which I think is a very, it's a radical kind of almost nihilistic, but, but not at the same time, um, way of viewing the world, which I think is also very empowering, you know, that like we can essentially believe whatever we want. You know, we only need to subscribe to a particular belief or worldview if it if it has value to us, right? Which isn't the way most people live. Most people kind of live under the authority of somebody else's worldview or belief system. So you don't actually need to believe anything when it comes to magic. And magic isn't a belief. You know, magic is a longstanding tradition of experimentation into the possibility of us affecting change in the world with our consciousness i mean that's one aspect of magic at least there's a lot more to it than that mm. you know and it's it's uh well documented and peer-reviewed if you will not through science but through the experiments of other practicing magicians throughout history many of whom have taken extensive notes on the results of their work you know and so that ex the example that you just gave of the Jim Carrey thing, it's almost like a form of hyper sigil because you're creating. It, I just talked with this guy on my podcast. His name's Aiden Walker, and he's also a, a, a magician who has written a lot of books about magic. Um, I just read his book called Weaving Fate, and the subtext of it is hyper sigils and telling true lies. And he was talking about kind of the etymology of the word sorcerer having something to do with telling the true lie. So in this case with Jim Carrey, it's like he told a lie. He didn't actually have $10 million. But sometimes if you tell a true lie, if you lie in such a way that you you give that, that lie substance validity and you charge it with a particular level of belief, it can actually conform to the circumstances of reality and such that it becomes true, hmm. if you will. And that's that's what magic is essentially. So with the, um, the magical way of thinking or someone who kind of identifies with this train of thought, um, how is this different to a religion? And also you, I mean, we were mentioning before about dark, dark magic and summoning demons. Um, if we're going to talk about summoning demons, I guess there's a baseline where you have to assume demons are real. And then I guess you also have to assume that there are forces or beings or something that are underneath the surface of this reality. What is kind of the metaphysical um, uh, consensus on all that? Is there, is it, because it kind of almost seems like it's getting into the into the realm of, you know, similar to a religious beliefs, belief, I guess, mysticism. Well, okay. There, there certainly are people that practice magic essentially as a religion, right? Like even, you know, Aleister Crowley established Thelema. It's just, it's kind of a religion, essentially. Mm. Like there's a mythology behind it, things like that. Um, 
So there are people that will relate to all this stuff, you know, like a, re a religious worldview. I think that animism in general, and, and using that term very loosely to say that it's a recognition that there is an inherent intelligence to the universe, and that can manifest depending on people's particular specific beliefs around animism, could manifest as there being, it could be a universe populated by spirits and things like that. That That is a kind of more or less generally consensus view of the world from people that practice magic. It's, I think that in order to be engaged in magical thinking, it would be challenging to do so without some belief in some kind of inherent intelligence that the universe holds and a responsibility that the universe has, right? But if you're a chaos magician, then you could believe that demons are real and that you're going to summon them for some particular aim and then completely discard that belief afterwards, you know? Hmm. Like, I think there's something really liberating and fascinating about the idea that you don't need to concretely subscribe to any one belief system and that beliefs can be adopted and discarded at will to reach particular aims because, you know, the jury is out on some kind of objective measure of truth. Many people believe many, many different things that would assert that their way of seeing the world is the right way. Right. So there is something kind of, true about all of them, at least to the people that believe in those things. But at the same time, they're not true. So I think that um, we are kind of trained to believe that you need to form opinions about a particular thing or that you need to have kind of like a concrete view of the way things are. I'm beginning more and more to adopt a kind of fluidity of belief around the world where I rest at the zero point and I allow my beliefs to change and fluctuate and contradict themselves, et cetera, without seeing that as a problem. There's actually a workability to belief that can actually benefit us because having a particular investment in a belief system might actually be advantageous at some point, but not at others. Hmm. Um, how, what got, so what got you into magic? Have, has there been anything that you've seen, witnessed or experienced that has almost been this moment of unex, unexplainable, well, magic that, that actually just thought, oh, okay, this is, this is it. There's truth to this. It's worth the time. It's worth the energy. And also, yeah, um, how old were you? What, what, what was happening in your life that really got you into this? Uh, yeah, there have been things that have kind of really opened my eyes to to in, in, being into this stuff. Also, you know, like I'm an artist and part of my reason for being interested in magic is sort of an aesthetic one. You know, like it feeds my inner artist, it feeds my inner child in a way that I find it to be inspiring you know um like when i was a kid if you really want to like go back to it i mean when i was a kid i was sure. like a fantasy nerd and like i read you know i was obsessed with harry potter and different kinds of books about magic i was always reading books about you know i loved lord of the rings i loved these kinds of archetypal fantasy stories in which the the wizard or the witch or the sorcerer was always an aspect of it and i just gravitated towards that kind of archetype 
and it was something that I, I liked. Right. So like, there's part of me that engages with it simply because it inspires me, whether or not it's, you know, objectively quote unquote real, so to speak, because as an artist, I get, I get value from it. You know, I find the rich symbol systems, the complexity of it, the academic rigor of it. Um, you know, the, I just, I find it to be, it's very rich in material, right? Mm. That also feeds my subconscious. It's like a psychedelic trip, just mm. like reading this stuff, you know? So my kind of naturally psychedelic mind also gravitates towards it because it's like, it is truly psychedelic if you start to explore this stuff. Yeah. I mean, even just aesthetically, it is so, uh, it's such, it's got such a cool, alluring um, aesthetic. Uh I don't know. Absolutely. I don't know whether many of your tattoos are, but some of the ones on your on your hands, I think I just saw. Are they are they magic inspired or are these? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my my whole approach to tattooing, both as a practicing tattoo artist and me receiving tattoos myself, is is either talismanic or kind of amulet tattoos. That all of my tattoos are imbued with a particular intention with consciousness put into them to try to use them to add juice to a particular trait you know if you will so like the tattoos on my right hand for example it's my creative hand and the idea behind this was to basically empower me to be a more proficient artist by receiving these tattoos that it would help me translate images and messages from the subconscious into reality and things like that. So I do approach tattoos in that way for sure. And on my chest, I have like a Kabbalistic protection amulet that was made for Jacob. Uh, that's more than a thousand years old that I discovered in a museum in Amsterdam uh, during an exhibition of Kabbalah artifacts and things like that. So that was also done in the same way. And I also have Thai magical Sakyant tattoos on my body, which they have a long standing tradition of essentially, you know, talismanic tattoo work that's done in a ritual context with Thai magic, Buddhist magic. So yeah, like my tattoos are, are certainly interlinked with that. Um, I also just have like a, an attraction towards and a propensity for ritual. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. I don't come from a religious household or anything like that. It speaks to some aspect of myself, kind of like the, the dramatic inner artist or something like that, you know, and it is aesthetically cool and interesting and beautiful and i do find it to be stimulating material for me as an artist right so like mm -hmm. i would continue to be interested in it even if i completely discounted any of the possibility or validity of us you know actually being a, of it being quote-unquote real uh, yeah. just because it is aesthetically inspiring yeah i i, I often kind of make that comparison even with kind of psychedelics i've heard people talk about you know particularly the dmt realm if you break through and shatter your reality and you encounter these creatures and beings um there really is no way of ever knowing whether that is a hallucination or a genuine interaction with another realm um, we just don't know. Why do we need? Why, exactly. why do we even need to draw that line or but make that, that distinction? That's exactly what I was going to. Yeah, the, something it about ma magic. Something about magic is that it it upholds the validity of anecdotal evidence, right? Hmm. You know, like 
that there is value to firsthand experience, right? Because there are shared experience experiences that I've never had that thousands of other people have had, right? That they talk about having like UFO um, alien abduction experiences, for example. Who am I to say that because you can't scientifically prove an alien abduction experience that it wasn't real for those people, yep. you know? Like why would they make it up? Like what's the point of that? Mm. And I think with magic, it's the same way. Like there's a, there's a long standing tradition of anecdotal evidence of people saying that they did stuff. And some of the people that are involved in magic and are kind of some of the more like the speakers of the, of the, of it and are more figureheads within it are pretty uh, left brain, rational, nerdy type people who have very analytical minds um, who are quite objective in the way they see reality and skeptical. Right. And I think that that's healthy you know, yeah. I don't want to waste my energy doing something that's not going to benefit me in some way. And another thing I'll say is that the shifts in consciousness that occur through ritual are also valid and inspiring. You know, yeah. that even if the ritual doesn't have any kind of particular outcome on the on manifesting something, the shifts that occur in consciousness through practicing this stuff can be profound. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, much like practicing yoga, it's the it is the yoga of the West, actually. Mm. You know, and it is the same kind of thing. It's just that right now there is a greater emphasis and popularity for whatever reason on Eastern traditions than Western ones. But they're both esoteric traditions. People are studying the occult of the East when they study yoga. And right. it's the same kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, it is funny how 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 uh, how differently it's perceived, isn't it? So occultism and magic is, is very much a Western mystic, mystical um, There is tradition. Eastern occultism, mm. and it's not, it's not in any way dependent on the West. You know, occult just means secret or hidden, right? right. And it speaks to traditions that generally were initiatic in nature. So yoga was also an occult system. It was also an initiatic thing where you had to be initiated by a guru and undergo um, a series of purifications and such to be able to practice it. It's not as occult now because it's become readily available, but there are still occult practices, you know, in both yoga and Buddhism. A lot of the kind of Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhist magic techniques that monks may practice are still secreted and withheld from the public eye. And we don't really know what they're doing or, or what it is. That's an occult tradition. And there are occult traditions within all cultures, not just, you know, magic as a word kind of refers to a specific tradition of Western esotericism that has a history that is primarily Western. Like I said, it arose out of kind of ancient Egypt or at least ancient Greece, as far as we can tell. And then it, it stretches through, you know, a lot of the, what we would study now as magic came from England primarily. And like a lot of the kind of more notable magicians throughout history were British, but mm. it is a, it's a Western tradition in that way. Yeah. The interesting thing about it is that I find that 
Western magic as opposed to Buddhist mythology and things like that. It speaks more to the symbol set that we already have ingrained in us of coming out of a Western culture, you know? So like, whether we like it or not, people in the West have been primarily raised within a kind of Judeo-Christian symbol set. And that's the symbol system that magic uses, you know, for somebody who grows up in Nepal or Tibet, the culture that they grow up in and the symbol system that they grow up with is going to be different. Hmm. So for them, that mythology is going to be more immediately relatable. But for somebody in the, in the East, in Nepal, for example, that understands that an ox cart means this, a Western person would actually need to read a book and be like, well, what does that mean? You know, but we have certain symbols like the fish relating to Jesus that we just know and understand. Right. So Western magic in a way is more kind of related to the way that the Western mind works uh, in order to, and its intentions, as I stated earlier, of achieving essentially enlightenment are very similar. It just uses a different set of symbols to try to create that change. Right. So, um, yeah, you kind of mentioned before you have experienced things that would almost be unexplainable. Do you care to share any of those or are they, um, you keep them? You know, I recently released a solo cast podcast where I talked for an hour and a half about the significant transformation that I underwent when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And just to stretch back to this, I did, I I first probably was introduced to Aleister Crowley uh, and magic in that kind of vein through the music of Tool because several of the members of Tool practice that and they use a lot of the kind of symbolism within their music and within their stage design and their art and stuff like that. So that kind of got me interested and curious about it. I began, I read, you know, my first Aleister Crowley book when I was in high school, which was book four in which he primarily talks about meditation and yoga actually. Uh, and, and began also meditating as a result, but I used to weigh 250 pounds and I was extremely miserable. I was, you know, very depressed and suicidal. And I tried essentially everything to try to change that, you know, so I was working out really hard. I went on a lot of strict diets and things like that. And nothing actually worked uh, because there wasn't a perceptual shift of myself that went with that. I still perceive myself as being the same kind of like miserable, wounded, fat kid and all of these things just kind of made it worse. And uh, just, uh, uh, it was a downward spiral of despair, right? That culminated, that would culminate naturally in suicide. And I thought a lot about that at the time. What happened actually is that I began, well, a few things happened. I basically became inspired by certain artists and I also was introduced to Dharma teachings um, through the, the work of Jack Cornfield, who had a meditation center I love Jack Cornfield. where I grew up. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I was lucky so enough be, to I interact began, with him at the Ramdas communities in, in, um, in Hawaii back in 2017, I think. But yeah, great, powerful teacher. Beautiful. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was about 15, 16, I started going to these meditation groups with Jack Cornfield. And I began meditating and finding relief in it. You know, like I had chronic pain, both emotionally and physically. And when I would meditate, that pain would start to go away, right? So I experienced this profound shift just through meditation. And 
over the course of about one year, I lost more than a hundred pounds, uh, essentially through meditating alone. Like I wasn't, I didn't really make any radical shifts to my diet and I certainly didn't make any radical shifts. I wasn't doing any vigorous or intensive exercise at the time at all. Uh, but what happened is that as my mind began to clear and still, I began to disassociate with the ego identity of being this kind of miserable person. And as my nervous system calmed down, I basically made the decision. I made a shift in consciousness in which I began to believe that I was a different person than I was at the time. I told a true lie to myself about who I was. Right. And my reality of me at the time being, uh, you know, obese and miserable conformed to the reality of my belief in myself as being thin and happy. And it happened with almost no external uh, striving, pushing, you know, no intense diets, no vigorous exercise, none of that, primarily through meditation alone. So that was kind of like my first experience of what you might call magic, which was a, a shift in consciousness that had a radical effect on the manifestation and outcome of external reality, which in that case was the health of my body. Wow. That's a, I'm so glad that you've come out of that darkness, man. That's an incredibly um, inspiring story. And yeah, I'm really sorry that, that you went through that, but um, what do you, what do I'm you not, think? I mean, it, it was like, it, it, I wouldn't be the person I am today without having going through that. And well, yeah, I yeah. mean, a lot of things like for, for me being so depressed and introverted, I put all my time into my art, you know, that had I not been this kind of like, uh, you know, like incel outcast at the time, like I probably, and I would have just been some like social high school kid going to parties and getting wasted or whatever people do in high school. Like I wouldn't be the artist that I am today. So I'm very grateful for that that opportunity, it was almost like um, a, a strange kind of um, restriction that was put aside on me that enabled me to really flourish and develop in the visual arts. Wonderful. What What do you think was actually hap actually happened in in you um, through just that shift of perception? Like, why do you think your body completely conformed to the way you started seeing yourself? I think that this is what I think. I mean, I don't yeah. really know. I think that, that the circumstances of our lives and who we are in essence is energetic and it's vibratory at its root, you know, that it is more abstract and it's more ephemeral than we, we perceive it as that the things that we perceive as materially real and solid are in essence, a form of energy that's just more condensed. Um, and that what began to occur within me was a fundamental shift of energy. So the energy of darkness or depression, uh, of misery, whatever you want to call it was running the code, so to speak, and giving the marching orders for my body to manifest in a particular way. When I shifted my consciousness so that it was running a different code from instead of being fat and miserable to being thin, healthy, and happy, that code is what 
gave the orders for my body to begin to shift, mm. right? And I do think that no matter what, consciousness and perception is fundamental to anything that occurs in our realities. Yeah. What I, I know this is a, a kind of a big question and, and it's going to be, you know, overly simplified, but how, how do you think, what is a great way for people to kind of reprogram that consciousness? People who are stuck in the darkness like you. Um, so it was through, it was through Buddhist meditation that kind of got you there. Like what was the shift? What was the moment it, when it, you it was, changed? It, it was through Buddhist meditation, but you know, I also was reading Crowley books in which he prescribes meditation. And I think it's fundamentally the same. I do think meditation, having a meditation practice, and I learned through Jack Kornfield, which is, he's a Theravada Buddhist, so it's Vipassana meditation, right. primarily. Um, you can't create those changes in consciousness until you really realize who you really are, right? Until you have an experience of perception removed from the trappings and the marriage of the ego, Right. You need to be able to first establish that distance where you are perceiver experiencing the ego rather than I am that. Mm. Do you, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So yeah. I think having just a meditation practice in which one experiences these kind of zero point consciousness type experiences where they identify with their perceptions rather than their minds, their thinking, their thoughts, their stories about themselves is the first step to being able to enact any kind of change. Like you could be a practicing magician, know all the rituals, uh, have studied all the books, read all the books. But if you don't have that essential ingredient of kind of knowing our true nature, you're not going to get very far, in my opinion. And that you don't actually need any of the rituals or any of that stuff. You just need to know who you are and know that the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories we tell about our realities is what our reality ultimately becomes. So you yep. become more and more mindful, more aware, more conscious of what goes on in our minds. And you realize that that is that there that there is weight to our thoughts, yeah. that our thoughts create a chain of events that ends up with the realization of particular outcomes. That's what, you know, in Buddhism or in Hinduism, they would call karma, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you begin, you begin to understand your own karma. And from that place, then you uh, are able to make shifts. When you were, so when you were in the, in the darkness, in this dark period, and you started these uh, meditation, um, uh, were they retreats or just, just kind of classes? I did retreats after later yeah. on, but yeah. at the time they were weekly meditation groups. How, how, cause a lot of people find it difficult to actually sit with their thoughts, sit with their, because the thoughts are often the, the thing that's, you know, hurting them or, or they perceive their thoughts to be um, what they're trying to escape from. Like, was it a difficult thing for you to ease into that? Or was it actually just this wonderful loving community that someone as skilled as Jack Cornfield actually provides that just instantly kind of like taking off that, you know, heavy cloak of burden? I think I've always had a natural proclivity towards those types of states of consciousness. And I've always been able to sort of go into trance states very easily. You know, I would consider myself, and this is a good thing to be a suggestible type person. So I'm, I'm easily hypnotized, if you will. Okay. And I've used that to my advantage through self-hypnosis and self-programming. Um, and I, I guess that I was naturally able to meditate quite easily and just, just by my nature. 
And before that, I had already explored lucid dreaming and other kind of um, forays into consciousness before I kind of began a, a more regular meditation practice. For, for one that had difficulty with it, um, I guess like, you know, it, it does take time to learn anything, to learn a new skill. You can also use, like, I like binaural beats, uh, you know, like different frequency tones yep. that are brainwave entrainment technology. I found that that, I find it's very effective. To meditate so, with uh, or just listen to? To meditate with, yep. yeah. It's like training wheels, right? So yep. it can put your brain into a particular state of consciousness that you can access more easily. And then after having that experience through the binaural frequencies, you may be able to achieve that more easily without it, you know, much like riding a bike with training wheels. So mm. that's a, you know, that's a suggestion. You could try that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have a lot of really um, distorted concepts about what meditation even is. And so I think the first step is just really actually understanding what it is and what it's about you know, like it doesn't mean necessarily, depending on the type of meditation that you practice, that you're not thinking, hmm. you know, it's just that you don't identify with the thoughts, right? And it's the fundamental realization that there is perception, there is consciousness that exists uh, independent of the thoughts, right? Because most people operate mired to their thoughts and under the delusion of perception that they are their thoughts. Yeah. Does, um, does Buddhism still have a, a, a place in your, in your spiritual understanding? A huge, a huge part of my life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I considered myself fundamentally to be a Buddhist for, you know, a lot of my life. And I still think that the Buddhist worldview is uh, one of the most logical and clearest understandings of the world that exists, you know, uh, I think it's important, actually, that if one gets into things like magic, where they begin to kind of mess with the forces and the field, that they kind of first get clear in themselves and do you know inner work to like heal particular traumas and things like that, so that they're not creating more pain in the world. And you know, Padmasambhava, for example, the Tibetan Buddhist guru, he basically was using high octane occult practices that were originated in India with the intention of liberating all sentient beings. Right. So like he was, he was like the Aleister Crowley of Buddhism. He was using, he was a high magus using high octane and magical practices with an attempt to liberate others from the samsaric wheel of suffering. So, you know, you can still, apply these kinds of ideas towards the benefit of all sentient beings. And one of the reasons why I've begun talking about magic after kind of being a closeted magic nerd for a long time is because I think that the techniques are empowering and because ultimately they help reduce suffering. Right. Hmm. And I, I really do see the world through the fundamental Buddhist lens that like none of us can be happy until all of us are because we don't exist independently. You know, we're all dependently, originating through each other's perceptions and perceptions of the world. So like you can live on top of your mountain and be all high and mighty and enlightened, but you're an aspect of your consciousness is still mired in the person that's experiencing the worst possible suffering that you could ever imagine on the planet. And until that person is also freed and liberated, you cannot experience true liberation. And that is like the Buddhist realization. 
And I believe that that's true, you know, that our happiness and our wellness is dependent upon the happiness and wellness of everybody that we're in relationship with, which is ultimately everybody and everything. Wonderful. It sounds like that um, you've explored many, many different kind of religions or traditions or spiritual, uh, I don't know, various forms of spirituality. And you've kind of, um, in a very healthy way, taken the bits that work and not hold on to it. Um, And I think that's that's such a a great way um, to approach spirituality. Have you found that many people in these more traditional forms of spirituality, maybe even Buddhism or other ones that you've explored, have a problem with your um, your deep relationship with magic or occultism? Is there any rejection of that side of it or, or not at all? Because you were saying before, no, like, Christianity kind of, they would burn witches at the stake. It was kind of this this bad thing that, that shouldn't be, yeah, explored. Um, I mean, I don't really interact a lot with kind of like, you know, fundamentalist Buddhists or things like that. Yeah. You know, I've met Jack Cornfield a few times. I've been to Buddhist retreats and stuff. And I mean, like, even Jack, like, he had his first awakening experiences were through psychedelics. Mm. Uh, and I've spoken to him about that. Right. And he's kind of like, he's, he's sort of shy about it. Like he doesn't want that to be too loud because it's contrary to the Buddhist kind of rule about not using intoxicants. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I do find that among people in general, uh, magic and occultism does seem to generate a lot of fear and paranoia. Sometimes it's really ridiculous and I kind of just roll my eyes at it. And it's really hard for me to not kind of like troll people, <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of evil in the world, like no doubt. Right. And they're not the people that are, you know, wearing pentagram necklaces and, uh, chanting to archangels those aren't the ones that are are doing evil they're the people whose egos have run unchecked that have you know too much power for their own good that are affecting the world in crazy ways yeah so it's just like it's like a miss it's misguided and misplaced fear really you know like you don't you don't need to be worried about satanists you know yeah like I heard. You don't. I heard you, need you to be speak. worried about politicians. Yeah, yeah, totally. I did hear you speak um, on your solo cast that you used to identify with the sat- sat- as a Satanist. Um, what what is even is it? Because the most um, it seems that there's massive misconceptions about Satanism. It's not necessarily evilness. There, it's more about rebellion. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there's two different kinds of Satanism ultimately there's theistic Satanism, which means you're a Christian kind of in a funny way. Hmm. Um, and there's Levain Satanism and Anton LeVay, who wrote the satanic Bible actually went to my high school, which is kind of cool. And I read that wow. book while I was there. Um, you know, uh, Levain Satanism is about questioning authority about radical independence of belief about, uh, about reality being fundamentally amoral and um, non-dogmatic that we can choose to exist however we choose to exist. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a it's like radical autonomy, I guess, is like a way that I would describe it. 
you know, there's rituals and stuff and like kind of pageantry that goes along with it. A lot of it is kind of like crudely borrowed from, from, you know, like order of the golden dawn or like Crowley kind of stuff. And there's not a lot of merit to like the rituals behind it, but yeah, like fundamentally Satanism is kind of like, I am my own authority and there's no authority over me that like, I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not below any kind of dogmatic God figure. Yeah. And, and that's, and it comes out of a feeling of being constricted and oppressed by religion. That's, that's really the basis of Satanism. You know, I never, I, I didn't grow up in a dogmatic family system or what I've never been really oppressed by religion. So I don't have that same kind of like, you know, drive to like destroy religion. Like that's, you know, that's not me. I think I do appreciate the kind of, um, you know, more like Luciferian kind of aspect of Satanism, which is that we can decide what's right for ourselves. Like I do, I think that that's something I still believe even many, many years, even now being very steeped in Buddhist thought and stuff like that, that we have a right to believe what we choose to believe, to practice what we choose to practice, to, you know, orient ourselves in whichever way feels right to us and that there's no authority above us to tell us what is right and what's wrong. And that's, that's kind of fundamental to Levain Satanism. Theistic Satanism is what you would call like devil worship. It's, you believe in the spiritual entity that is Satan, you know, um, which is kind of like an aggregor for all of the kind of dark and uh, primal and uh, serpentine aspects of humankind. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like the amygdala on steroids. And you uh, feel that you can derive some kind of power from an alliance with that energy. And so you, you consciously cultivate and invoke that. You know, I've never been into that. It's not mm. something that like, I mean, I, I used to listen to black metal bands that did that, you know, but yeah. at the time I was an atheist and I was like, this is kind of, you know, <laughs> silly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I kind of believe that the aggregor of Satan exists, right? That like, as a collective, in our collective consciousness, we do kind of idealize and mythologize kind of what we would consider to be absolute evil or absolute chaos. Right. But I, I'm not sure I believe in a kind of actual entity, like a living spirit or being or like God form that is, you know, Satan. And the interesting thing also in regards that, you know, this is like a whole other tangent, but the devil concept has been, the, the perception of what we would consider the devil now has taken a lot of different forms throughout history and has been related to throughout human history, a lot of different ways. You know, like one example is that the idea of the devil kind of comes out of the pagan God Pan, which was a very beneficent entity that represented the theomorph, the union of the animal nature with the divine which is it, it represented the Lord of the world, the earth plane and essentially humankind, because we stand within the crossroads of divinity and, and animal kingdom, right? That's what we are. Mm. So that's what the devil kind of came out of. Right. But then it was, again, there's 
kind of a propaganda by the Christian church to try to make that concept evil as a way of uh, pushing down pagan people who were still invested in pagan beliefs. Wow. Wow. You're very, uh, you're very, um, very informed, Jake. It's very interesting. It's very interesting to hear you talk, man. Dude, I, 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 I would like, you know, study this stuff full time. Like if I had, if I, if I could go to Hogwarts, man, sign me up. You know what I mean? Like, I love this stuff. I read about it all the time. Like yeah. even when I'm painting, I'm constantly listening to audiobooks or podcasts. Like, yep. yeah, I, I consume this kind of stuff obsessively. That's great. It's awesome. Um, I'd love to talk to you about your art, man. It's, um, it's, cool. it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's, it's incredibly intricate. Um, Thank when, you. when did, so when, I mean, and so fucking psychedelic, it's like, it is so psychedelic. Um, when, when did your, when did you establish your style and when did kind of like your art career get, get happening? When, when did this psychedelic lane of visionary art really, really happen for you? <laughs> My art career is, is just starting to get happening. Okay. Yeah. Me too, <laughs> but, man. Yeah, no, I, I know, I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm quite there yet, but yeah. like, I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, well, you know, when I was, like I started making art when I was pretty young, when I was like 12 or 13. And I told you basically based through um, my experiences in high school, being this like really intense introvert kind of solitary being, I I literally spent all my time making art, Mm. you know? And so that kind of forged a type of foundation that really served me throughout the rest of my life. I think that I began making what you would call visionary art, after I started having experiences with meditation and then later with psychedelics, um, you wow. know, and, and that was uh, informed and inspired by um, th- people like Ramdas even, or yeah. Aldous Huxley. Uh, and of course, inspired by Alex Gray, Andre Jones was also a big influence of mine. And I, I met him at a very young age. So he kind of had a, a very formative influence kind of as like a role model for me. Great. in regards to the kind of art that I wanted to make. And if he was a psychedelic artist, you know, yeah. and I was inspired by what he was doing and same with Alex Gray, who I became exposed to through tool and stuff like that. But all of the art I've always loved, you know, whether it's Beksinski or HR Giger, Giger was probably like one of the first artists that I really fell in love with. Yeah. They're all psychedelic visionary artists, you know, to a, to a certain degree, even, you know, Giger and Beksinski, I think are, even though they're kind of like are a bit more on the melancholy side of things so i don't know it's just always what i've liked and another thing is that when i was growing up my one of my dad's best friends was an artist and he worked for robert venosa as a printer and had like huge prints of venosa's art in his house so when i was really young probably like i don't know 10 years old or something i would go over to his house with my parents and i would just stare at these venosa paintings and they blew my mind so those sort of things made like early impressions on me that became, you know, formative influences for the kind of art that I wanted to make. Yep. Yep. When, um, so it's interesting to hear that the, I guess it was in your consciousness from, from a very young age, but yeah, interesting that you got into the visionary art before the psychedelic influence. That's, that's really cool. I mean, for me, like I've said this many, many times with, um, on this podcast for, yeah, when I, had my psychedelic uh, revelation like drastically changed um, the kind of art I was making. I was making boring shit 
crap. I mean, I had technical ability, but I didn't have much to say. I didn't have much I wanted to explore. Uh, psychedelics really helped get that out. But yeah, so, so it's it's cool to hear that that even happened before the psychedelic. Uh, That's what you call a psychedelic success story. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of those. There's more. The more you talk to people, hey, the... Yeah. The um the horror stories seem to become more and more peripheral. I wasn't really making psychedelic art until I, until I started using psychedelics. Like right. my art definitely changed significantly after having those experiences. It on it opened doors in my mind that I didn't even know were there. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and the style of my art dramatically changed. It became a lot more colorful, a lot more expressive, a lot more experimental, a lot more detailed, you know, kind of like all the common attributes it became weirder honestly but like yeah yeah psychedelics had a huge effect on the style of art that i create and i I really credit them as you know the use of psychedelics and those experiences have been some of my biggest influences and inspiration in the kind of work that i create any particular psychedelic that uh, gave you that that moment of kind of perception all of them (laughs) (laughs) i did all the psychedelics um (laughs) well you know like my first my first experience on psychedelics was with mushrooms and it wasn't particularly visual but it was profoundly healing and it was very positive and i kind of had a i had an experience of of existing as consciousness without identification right so like what you might call an ego death experience i had that on my first go, but I kind of primed myself intentionally to have that experience. I had been already meditating for a while before I ever used mushrooms. And I had been reading books by Ram Dass, sorry, my voice cracked, Jack Kornfield, um, Aldous Huxley, you know, Terrence McKenna, people like that, that already gave me a kind of like framework and gave me an expectation of what the psychedelic experience could be. And uh, I think that's important. I think that was really beneficial. So I kind of already brainwashed my I created a a kind of placebo if you will in terms of what my psychedelic experience was going to be you know and then when I I had that experience I had the kind of like clear light or the ego death type experience on mushrooms that was beautiful and very very healing and that influenced my art just right off the get-go I started creating art that was informed by that experience and I wanted to narrativize that and create works of art that demonstrated that experience through through symbols right um later on i didn't do any psychedelics again for at least a year after that but later on i began experimenting a lot with lsd and dmt and other psychedelics and lsd i would say if i had to credit one psychedelic as having the largest influence on my aesthetic probably LSD. Hmm. You know, my experiences on LSD were way more visual and way more kind of like creatively stimulating than my initial experiences with mushrooms. And they, it really opened creative doors where I would get, I would be very inspired by particular things that I would experience or see on LSD trips that later I would integrate into the works of art that I was creating. Yeah. I mean, same. That was definitely the one for me that just, um, yeah, I mean, not necessarily like I didn't see a whole bunch of stuff, but it just it it changed that perception. Um, what exactly like how would you kind of describe what your work has become now in your own words? I 
I, I don't mind the term visionary art mm. that, you know, a la Alex Gray. I feel like he's done a great job of really describing a kind of like group effort to use art to help evolve consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, and to encapsulate esoteric teachings into works of art and also to encapsulate psychedelic experience. And those have been kind of um, missions of mine in a way or motivations of mine in creating art is, is an attempt to encapsulate those different aspects. So I guess I would, I would call it visionary art. You know, it's hard to shake the Alex Gray comparison, but yeah. I don't really mind so much because I, job, I think he? that there, <laughs> yeah, great job. And also there's merit to kind of like a, the community of visionary artists or the school of visionary artists all kind of working together with a, a shared mission and I, I feel that among the visionary art community, you know, it yeah. has a, it has the same kind of vibe, I guess, as what I would imagine it was like with impressionists in the 1800s or, or something. It's like, it's a scene, it's a community, it's a movement, totally. right? And I, I don't mind participating in that, you know, more and more though, I become more interested in kind of the more Western esoteric tradition and magic and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I have been working on stuff that I haven't released to the public yet that I have been marrying those aspects together right so like taking my influence of eastern art and eastern buddhism and things like that and psychedelic experiences but also marrying in western esoteric symbolism and stuff like that you know i was i I recently did a podcast with lee mccloskey who is a very inspiring artist and he's somebody who has, has been doing that like he studied primarily theosophy uh, but he created a tarot deck that is absolutely amazing. And he's a visionary artist, but much more in the kind of Western canon of exploring what you might call magic uh, than than kind of, you know, Alex Gray uh, seems to be more influenced by like Vajrayana Buddhism and stuff, which like, man, the art of like Tonka oh. paintings and Buddhist tradition is like Trippy. amazing. So it's yeah, <laughs> it's hard not to be inspired and influenced by that as well. Yeah. I guess that like for myself to kind of what I think could potentially set me apart from already very established artists is the influence of the Western esoteric tradition. Whereas visionary artists tend towards Eastern symbolism, you know, but I'm also very influenced by Balinese art. So it's, it's all the things. Yeah. I was wondering, um, so it, it seems like maybe I'm projecting here, but it seems like you put a lot of intention, uh, in each one of your, your pieces. Um, I've seen you, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of your works are kind of loaded with symbolism. Um, I've seen images of you, uh, appearing to basically kind of meditate in front of your work, which again, to me seems like you're very much, you're trying to deliver a, a very real um, intention in, into your piece and hopefully that is uh, received from, from its viewers. Do you see your works at all kind of like a very elaborate, complex version almost of sigil magic? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've been really fascinated with the idea of hyper-sigil. It's something that I've done already a lot without really having a term to describe it. The idea of the hyper sigil comes from, you know, you mentioned Grant Morrison earlier. Mm-hmm. He was the comic book writer who wrote The Invisibles. He basically put himself as a character within The Invisibles to um, affect change in his life and found that bizarrely synchronistic occurrences would, would happen that directly paralleled the situations that he put himself through in the comic book. 
So this is where the idea of hypersigil comes from, that you can use art as a way of affecting change. And I think that that is the kind of fundamental mission and purpose of visionary art, right? Hmm. It, it operates under the belief that we can affect the world and we can affect change through the works of art that we create, you know? And I guess I had experiences of realizing the responsibility that I had as an artist, because my art when I was younger was quite kind of dark and scary looking and disturbing. And uh, partly through my own experiences of being on psychedelics at festivals and going into festival galleries and having different experiences with different pieces of art, some of which felt a bit disturbing or intense and others that felt very calming and soothing. And uh, realizing that that's an environment where my work is often shown and people are in those states of consciousness, I wanted to try to create things that would imprint a particular energy or a particular charge into the mind of those that view it. So it, they are hyper sigils, not only for the changes that I want to see in my own life, and it definitely has been that, but also as a way of affecting change in the world and for the viewer, right? And I think that that is a very empowering kind of idea to have as an artist that we can actually use our art to affect change. And throughout history, art has superseded shifts in the consciousness of the collective. Hmm. Wow. Um, how long do they, how long do they take? Cause they're, they're so, they're so fucking detailed, man. And they're quite large. They're, they're like almost, you know, not quite huge, like, the size of a person, but they're like at least a meter tall, aren't they? And they just look incredibly mm -hmm. techy. Like what's your, what's your process? They take you, a long time. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that. Yeah. They take a long time. Um, usually I work on paintings for like a few months at a time. Yeah. And, uh, I, nowadays I tend to work di digitally first and I create right. drawings using my iPad and then I will print out the drawings, like a line drawing onto canvas mm. and then work That's out, like technique. I work in it. I work like in an indirect method of painting, you know? So like I work in acrylics now. I used to work in oils and I build up like a white underpainting over a base color, or sometimes it's a gray underpainting, um, but like a monochromatic underpainting. I basically paint the entire image in black and white or using mm. white over a color base. And then I glaze on top of it. And then I refine and detail it after that, you know? So it's interesting by the time, by the time I'm actually like working on, the pieces by the time they've been printed onto the canvas, I pretty much already have them worked out in my mind. And I will sometimes fully render them digitally and then like have my iPad next to me as I'm painting and cross reference it almost like painting from a photograph. Yeah. So the digital tool has been really useful for me in, in refining my ideas and clarifying what I want my images to look like before I work on them. And that saved me a lot of time. I used to just kind of jump right into it and just go for it. Mm. And there'd be a lot more needing to like mess around to discover the image, which can be fun. But nowadays it's a little bit more streamlined where I pretty much clarify what the image is going to look like more or less exactly before I begin painting it. Yeah. That's similar to me. Um, where, where did you develop this kind of black and white style of painting and, and then purely glaze? Is that a, is that a unique style that you kind of developed or are many other artists in the visionary world? go that way or? Uh, it's not unique it's not unique at all mm. no it's a very old method of painting actually i guess i first like i studied a little bit in uh classical art schools so i studied at a place called the city valerie atelier in san francisco and i also spent time 
uh, a short amount of time at the Angel Academy of Art in Florence. Cool. And they teach a classical method of painting. And that indirect style of painting, it's usually done with oils, is uh, a very old method of painting where classical painters would create a grisaille under painting, which is like a grayscale version of their work or what would be called a dead layer. And then they would establish the colors through glazing and then paint on top of that. So that's basically the method that I use now. And it's actually a very old method of painting, but in the visionary scene, it's also pretty popular. It was popularized by Ernst Fuchs who created mm -hmm. this technique called the Mish technique, which would do the same thing, but use egg tempera over oil glazes using building up layers of white and then color glazes to create the same kind of effect. And, you know, like Amanda Sage was, yeah. was his student and she teaches this technique as has taught it to like tons of people as does Lawrence Caruana, who is also his student. So through their workshop circuits, it's also become popularized. And I did learn that technique and I did use the Mish technique with Cassine or egg tempera and doing it kind of by the books and experimented with it a lot. But now I just take those same principles of white uh, underpaintings and color glazes and I do it with acrylics because it, it dries more quickly and um, I, I, I get pretty much the same effects from it. Yeah. Wow. It sounds too, way too, uh, like, it sounds too techy and technical and, and um, painstaking, uh, the egg tempera method for, for me to have ever given it a crack. It just seems very, um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know where to begin with all that. I just uh, can't get over to squeezing it's, the paint out of the tube, you know? <laughs> it's pretty It's pretty open to interpretation, yeah. you know? So it's, it's as kind of like loose or as tight as you make it. And mm. you can learn the basic principles of it which is how to create luminescence with white, basically like really subtle layers of white and transparent color glazes. That's basically the fundamental principle of the whole technique. And then you can kind of run with that and you can play around with it and do your own thing with it. There's really no rules. And even Ernst Fuchs, when he was creating art throughout his whole career, experimented with a lot of different ways of doing it. Like there's not one way to do it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, even for you, if that's not like a technique that you usually use, like by you learning a bit of blazing technique and stuff like that, you might find like, wow, I, I can use it for this. And you might use it for certain aspects of your paintings that you don't need to do it the whole thing that way. But there might be like a part of the painting that you want to work that way. It's really great for kind of like luminescence or kind of glowy effects or like crystal looking things like all the kind of etheric stuff that visionary art is famous for it's yeah. just really good for that and many of your art like your pieces they they really glow well i mean i haven't seen them in person but they they seem even digitally just to have that effect man they're really um they're really Thanks. amazing <laughs> Thank you. Um, dude, we've, um, we've smashed it, man. I really appreciate you um, making the time. Um, how do people find your work and um, also your podcast? Like maybe, maybe just quickly um, direct everyone to your podcast because you've interviewed some amazing people, um, Andrew Jones and as well that you were mentioning before. Um, yeah, go mm -hmm. for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Instagram is probably the best place to find my work as well as, you know, just me in general. There's a link on my Instagram to this temporary kind of portal page where I have links to my podcast. You can also find the podcast. It's called the quarantine sessions on Spotify or on Apple podcasts or any of the major podcasting hosting platforms right now. I have, I'm way behind schedule when it comes to uploading them. I'm working on getting them all edited. And so I only have like 16 episodes released so far, but I'm 
I'm working on it. I'm, I'm getting all these episodes released and I have had the opportunity and the privilege to interview a lot of really amazing people. So you've and released 16 and you've recorded almost 50, but you've only released 16. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's taking a long time to get them edited and uploaded. Yeah, there's a lot more in uh, it, But I'm there? working on it. <laughs> how, how for you, sure. How yeah. have you found uh, entering the, the podcast world? How have you found it? You've been enjoying it? I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Great. It's a really cool opportunity to talk to really fascinating and inspiring people and to kind of be like tutored by them in a way. Yeah. You know? Totally, totally. I can ask these people like whatever I want. Like, I get, you know, you can read a book. It's one thing, but to ask the person directly what you want to know is like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's like a life cheat, isn't it? It's like a, a little cheat code of how to get access to all your, uh, all your um, heroes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not everybody I've wanted to interview has said yes, but yeah. I'm working on it. And yep. maybe someday they will when I, when I'm more established as a podcaster, but it's been really fun. And it's also been kind of like, I feel like it's created some shifts in me also in terms of, I feel more confident speaking mm. now, you know, than I did or, or more confident as kind of like a conversationalist. And yeah, it, it's been, it's been really fun for me. I really love it. And uh, it's been like a labor of love. You know, I'm not making any money off of it. I'm yep. like paying out of pocket for all like the equipment and editing and stuff, but it's just been like a fun labor of love uh, and kind of like one of my, contributions you know to people like just putting out like cool free content into the world yeah um i've been loving it yeah i just wanted Mm. oh thank you i just wanted to say also like uh yeah people wanted to find me on instagram my instagram account is cobrin k-o-b-r-i-n and uh i yeah that portal link has almost anything you'd you'd want to find on me on there Uh, and i'm working on a website right now that would be a more kind of established gallery for my artwork but it's kind of coming along slowly yeah man baby steps baby steps <laughs> awesome jake uh jake coburn thank you so much and um it's been a pleasure to talk to you man and like so much fucking shit to think about dude you're so knowledgeable um it's really cool it's really cool to get a crash course in all the things that are that you're interested in um thank you for listening everyone and again thanks thanks a lot jake take it easy absolutely much love bro (laughs) cheers